What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. And hi, everyone. After rallying more than 7% yesterday, stocks are on a tear again today and on pace to close at their highest levels in a month. The Dow's up uh, nearly 700 points. That's a 3% gain, slightly smaller gain for the S&P 500 today. The Nasdaq is only up 2%, interestingly, so it's a little bit of a laggard. Giving these markets a boost are more indications that the spread of the pandemic may be slowing in some hot spots. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying he's working with Secretary Mnuchin and Leader Schumer and hopes to approve further funding for the small business loan program as soon as Thursday. So some pretty big news there. Looks like markets took a leg up on it. Let's get more on today's gains with Bob Bassani. Hi, Bob. Yeah, and we have had an enormous move, 250 points in the S&P 500 in the last two days. And some stocks are up. They're getting all sorts of chatter on Twitter about these amazing moves in some of these markets. But 250 points in the S&P in a day and a half is really quite a move. There you see today up 72 points uh, alone on the S&P 500. Some stocks need to be cautioned here in terms of their exuberance. So people keep saying, oh, look at the retailers. Kohl's today is up 28 percent. Well, remember something. Kohl's was $45 stock a month ago. It's $18 now. Okay, And this is with the rally we've seen in the last two days. This is all across the board. A lot of these big names, the the travel names, the Royal Caribbean here is up 20 percent today. Uh, Last couple days up huge. It was $110 in February. It's $36 now with the two day rally. Same thing with the REITs. Kimco uh, is up uh, 11, 12 percent today. Big rally in the last two days. It was $18 a month ago. It's $9 now. It's been cut in half with the rally. Same thing with these oil stocks. Apache, everybody's buying some of these oil names 20% up today. It was 23 a, a month ago. And look at it now. It's, it's what, $7? And remember, they cut the dividend 90%. So be careful about all of that. Finally, just note, with the S&P up 250 points in the last uh, two days, where's the, where's the VIX? What happens? It's only down four points in 250-point move. This shows you an indication A lot of people still very nervous and a lot of put buying still out there, even with this rally. Guys, back to you. Okay, Bob, thanks so much. Bob Bassani. Uh, J.P. Morgan is out with an optimistic note today saying, quote, the apex in New York state is likely imminent as opposed to one month out. Strategist Marco Kalanovich goes on to say that big data indicated very early on that social distancing is working overall. For more, I'm joined now by Barry Bannister. He's head of equity strategy for Stiefel. Barry, it's good to see you. And are you turning more positive, constructive on these markets? Well, on March 19th, we wrote a note called We See an S&P 500 Relief Rally to 27.50, up 15% by April 30th. Um, there's a couple days before the bottom. And then uh, Sunday, we wrote a reiteration note. And of course, yes, it has been a very powerful rally. But, you know, the market surprise factor is what drove us into the fastest bear market in history. And an enormous fiscal $2 trillion plus monetary policy, $1.8 trillion response is driving a, a, a almost record rebound as well. Right. We now have reports that the $350 billion small business lending program could get I mean, if Marco Rubio's suggestion is adopted, $200, $250 billion more oomph behind it. So half a trillion dollars we're talking about 
Is that a good sign or a bad sign to you? I mean, on the one hand, we want the companies that need help to get it. On the other hand, it tells you that the scope of that need is, is large. Certainly there is a scope of the need, and a lot of this was self-inflicted, um, comparing this pandemic to, for example, the 1957-58 or 1968 pandemics of influenza. Uh, this is a coronavirus, uh, however. But one of the things that we are finding is that the increased role of the government in the economy in the long term, and this uh, blowing out of deficits and the Fed uh, having to step into this role that they're playing, uh, it's probably going to lower your longer-term returns. So we enjoy this rally while it lasts. But thinking longer-term, we would expect a weaker market over the next five and ten years than we certainly enjoyed over the preceding five and ten years. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because there are, there are some who say once you have equities trading at such uh, low prices, it implies higher future returns. Why do you think this time would be different, or, or is it not a valuation story to you? Oh, it very much is, uh, but valuation is not that low. Uh, the penetration of equities within household portfolios is still fairly high. Uh, we look at CAPE ratios and Tobin's Q and other specialty valuation methods. Uh, one of the things that uh, we had was a 17% compound 10-year decade in the 10 years after the financial crisis in February of 2009 to 2019. Uh, that return simply can't be repeated based on all the work that we have going back 70 or 80 years. So what we're doing right now is just enjoying the rebound uh, to perhaps 2,800 or so, uh, which was just under that, which is a Fibonacci uh, one-half retrace. Uh, but that might get digested. We shall see. Uh, but then beyond that, um, we have to monitor the fact that the, uh, the old days are gone and that this new role of expanded government and uh, weak earnings on the horizon probably does inhibit some of our longer-term returns. Let me ask you finally if that changes where you'd want to invest, um, what sectors you think are most attractive right now or which companies within those sectors and, and how you think this leadership might look. Well, very much so in the last 25 years when your uh, defensive sectors have uh, led to a huge spike vis-a-vis -vis your cyclical sectors. So I'm talking staples and Utilities and healthcare vastly outperform industrials, materials, financials, energy, technology, and consumer discretionary. So, when your defenses outperform your cyclicals and peak, when that peak occurs, a huge rally has always ensued. And that looks like it's occurring now. So, we've been emphasizing the cyclical side. Obviously, the old tech winners, the software semis and uh, hardware, uh, should do well. That's going to be a reflexive movement. But we're also going to see, we believe, a weaker dollar as we look into 2021. Energy stocks should bounce back nicely. Materials benefit as well. And I even think there'll be a highway bill next year, and we'll probably have the industrial stocks doing quite well. Yeah. No, I was driving in uh, this morning and thinking, you know, there's a lot of empty lanes that could be doing a lot of long-term construction projects right now with, with little disruption. Uh, anyway, Barry, a lot of great thoughts in there. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Barry Bannister is head of equity strategy at Stiefel. We have some news from the bond markets now. Those 10-year notes went up for auction top of the hour. Rick Santelli has the results. Rick? Absolutely. A grade for demand at top of the one. I gave it a C minus, Charlie minus, just a smidge below average. What are we talking about? 25 billion 10-year notes. The Dutch auction yield the lowest ever at a Dutch auction for a 10-year, 0.782. 0.782, so a bit higher than three quarters of 1%. And what's interesting here is, is that the 
Yield it obviously is the lowest, but it tailed just a little bit. So the C minus really comes from the that fact. 78.2, it was trading around 0.78 on the one issue market, higher yield, lower price. If you look at all the metrics, bid to cover 2.43, 59.2 on indirects and 13.2 on directs. They were all fairly close to 10 auction average. So C minus, uh, we have 30-year bonds tomorrow to complete the supply and I was very impressed, but let's not lose sight of the fact with all the liquidity and the gear uh, liquidity provided by the central bank, it doesn't surprise me that 10 years found a good audience. Kelly, back to you. Okay. Rick, thanks so much. Rick Santelli. Now we turn to the 2020 election. It'll come down to a handful of states, and the question is how coronavirus will potentially change voter sentiment. Kayla Tausche is here with the results of CNBC's States of Play survey. Kayla. Kelly, voters in six critical swing states are growing increasingly concerned about the coronavirus in an exclusive poll conducted by CNBC and Change Research in April 2nd and 3rd. Uh, Two-thirds of voters in these states said that they have very serious concerns about the coronavirus, and that is up from just 20 percent in mid-March. Now, while they're more concerned about their family's health than the economy, fears of a recession are growing, too. Sixty-five percent of respondents believe the U.S. is already in a recession. And in Florida and Pennsylvania, a majority of voters fear it could be worse than the 2008 financial crisis. In North Carolina, voters are the most likely to say that the economy is doing well. Michigan also uh, having some optimism among voters there. And how are the states doing? How are their governments doing? How do voters perceive they are being successful? Well, in Florida, 69 percent of voters believe that the state is not being aggressive enough. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is a close ally of President Trump's. He was among the last to order a stay-at-home executive order. He just did that on April 1st, and he had previously said he was waiting for direction from the White House. The approval rating of the federal government largely falls along party lines, but there are a few policies, Kelly, that have overwhelmed bipartisan support, and that is financial assistance from Congress using the Defense Production Act to procure medical supplies and social distancing, which a majority of these responders say they are doing. Kelly? Kayla, stick around. Uh, as she mentioned, some key swing states like Florida and Michigan aren't all that confident in their government's response to coronavirus. Is this the kind of thing that will impact the election this fall, or is it too early to tell? Let's bring in Brian Schwartz. He's a political finance reporter for CNBC.com. Uh, Brian, it's good to see you. What jumps out to you about these results? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, President Trump, when he came into office, was really pushing, uh, and, and since then, has really been pushing how great the economy's been. And the, the coronavirus really has kind of muddied the mess, muddled the message here a little bit. And so in these states, talking about Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, these are really key states for him if he wants to go on and get reelected. He, some of these places, he had just beaten Hillary Clinton in 2016 by a hair, uh, including in Florida, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So it really is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I, I, you, you'd think that the, you know, with somebody like, like Trump who keeps on touting the markets, and I, I'll be at the markets doing better the last two days, uh, this really could be a problem for him if, if people continue to fear a recession. This poll shows that 81 percent of the uh, respondents fear a recession coming up, potentially. Uh, and, and the other part is, is, the, is the jobless claims. Right? We've had millions of jobless claims in the last two weeks. If that trend continues, uh, voters in these states really could turn on Trump, and you could see that, see that in the polls, and that could be, potentially, a boost to former Vice President Joe Biden, who's going to be the likely Democratic nominee at this right. point. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. But if this trend continues, 
uh, President Trump could have a problem in his re-election. Kayla, how do you expect, you know, if he anticipates that, that we might see the policy response increase or change? Well, Kelly, we know that the White House had been readying a playbook for this fall to stave off a recession, and they've had to early up a lot of those measures and really expand what they were thinking about. I think that the White House is in a difficult position right now because uh, they are really throwing everything at this effort that they can from a policy perspective to try to shore up the economy and get money in people's hands. I think it comes down to who voters feel is at fault for this and how long it lasts. Because if you look at some of these approval ratings, 62 percent of voters think that their state is doing a good job. But President Trump's approval rating uh, in his handling of the coronavirus crisis is just 49 percent. Um, so do voters feel that this is an act of God and the White House is simply having to respond to external forces that are outside of its control? Or do some of these critical independent voters fault President Trump for not acting quickly enough to try to stave off some of these uh, uh, the, some of these statistics and some of these deaths in these states like New York uh, that are really, really, I mean, they're just, they're gut-wrenching. They are heart-rending. Um, right. How do voters feel about that and who do they lay the blame with? Absolutely. Brian, uh, we'll come back to you for the final word here. Yeah, I would say keep an eye on that small business optimism index. You know, right, it's down eight points uh, in March. That's the lowest it's been since it started, uh, that, that groups that are doing that survey, the NFIB. That's, again, going to be a critical point of reference as we go further and further uh, into the election as we get closer to November. And voters, maybe they do have short memories, but I'll, I'll tell you what, I don't know, but they're, they're going to be forgetting, you know, these millions of job losses as we get further and further into 2020. Okay. Well, we thank you both. Uh, we appreciate, again, bringing with the results of CNBC's survey, Kayla Tausche and Brian Schwartz talking about the implications. Coming up, as more Americans begin to file for jobless benefits, states themselves are getting super overwhelmed. We're going to look at how they're turning to big tech for help. Plus, supply swap. Ventilators are being shipped around the country as states with extra try to help those states most in need. We have those details ahead. And ExxonMobil announces it's cutting CapEx spending by 30 percent. If the biggest of the big has to make such large cuts, what does it mean for the rest of the industry? We're back in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Let's get to the very latest in the coronavirus outbreak. Over to Sue Herrera for what we know at this hour. Sue. Kelly, thank you very much. Hello, everybody. New York now has more confirmed COVID-19 cases than Italy, almost 139,000, making it the global epicenter for the virus. Dozens of people lining up just north of Miami to file paper applications for unemployment benefits. The state's jobless website has failed to handle a doubling of its usual traffic. The Wall Street Journal reporting that of the more than a thousand companies responding to FEMA's call for virus supplies, only three are now selling to the government. Many would-be vendors wanted money up front, and FEMA will not do that. Meantime, the UFC is planning to start holding fights next weekend, although fans will not be present. The exact location isn't clear, but the league's president says he is close to securing a private island for the bouts. 
And in the UK, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson remains in the ICU unit at a London hospital. He is getting oxygen, but officials stress he is not on the ventilator. He is breathing on his own. We expect another update in about 45 minutes to an hour. For more on the coronavirus coverage, you can head to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. You think we'll have an update on Boris Johnson's status in that time soon? Yes. Uh, Dominic Robb, who is basically deputized for the prime minister, had a news conference just a short while ago. We're going to get some comments from him. We'll let you know exactly what he said. And then in 45 minutes, they are expecting another update. It won't be a formal news conference, but they are they are being pretty transparent about how the prime minister is doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's awful. It's scary. So uh, we hopefully look forward to that news. Sue, thanks very much. You got it. Let's turn to the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic, which is impacting states here in the U.S. in different ways. Some are turning to tech for help and some are turning to each other. Rahel Solomon is here looking at the states that are enlisting tech companies to help with their unemployment claims. And Elon Moy has the story of states swapping medical supplies. Rahel, we start with you. Hi, Kelly. So frustrated unemployed workers are calling on Governor Cuomo of New York to waive the call or essentially waive a requirement that some applicants have to first call before their process, before their application can be processed. One Twitter user, take out her tweet. Check out her tweet. She tells us that she's called the number at one point a thousand times in a day, still didn't get through. Another worker says that she filed her unemployment claim on March 24th. She was told to call. She's been doing that 200 times a day since then. Also hasn't gotten through. It feels like a nightmare and I don't want to deal with it. Like, and it's like making me emotional now because it's like, again, I didn't expect any of this to happen. And like, I, I was so proud of my job and it's just like, I feel stuck. So we know that Kansas and Missouri or Kansas and Massachusetts, I should say, have both reached out to AWS and listed their support to both expand capacity and also uh, sort calls as they come in. So essentially, when calls come in, they sort them to the right department. So hopefully people get through the process sooner. For New York's part, I just spoke with a spokesperson from the governor's office telling that they have automated more functions. So people hopefully have fewer reasons to need to call. So they're trying to do their part as well. Yeah, Kelly. Absolutely. They're all trying to deal with the influx. Uh, Rahel, we appreciate it. Uh, now to Elon Moy. Elon and the states themselves are trying to step up and help uh, those that need the medical supplies by, I guess, effectively donating them. How does that work? Yeah, Kelly, since many states can't get what they need from the federal government, they're trying to get what they need from each other. So California is loaning out 500 of its own ventilators to other states, while Washington has said that it's returning 400 ventilators to the strategic national stockpile. So once we saw that it was very likely that we would have enough ventilator capacity, we freed that up for other Americans who might be uh, struggling for breath right now in, in other states, and we turn that to the uh, to the federal stockpile. Now, Oregon was actually the first state to announce a ventilator swap. Those machines started shipping out last night. This video is from the governor's office, which said that FEMA is coordinating the logistics. They're supposed to be heading to New York, though the arrival date and time are still uncertain. Now, Kelly, I do want to be clear. These states are still suffering from shortages of other supplies, masks, gowns, gloves. But I am told that there are informal discussions to try to broaden this effort, share what they can. California's governor said that he hopes that if the tables were turned, other states would be there for them. Back In, to you. Elon, it reminds me a little bit of what happens with the utility companies. When there's a big storm or a power outage, they often ship in workers and 
uh, gear and supplies from other states. And you do wonder if this is something that could be formalized in the future. Right. So you've heard that uh, Governor Cuomo from New York obviously talk about the possibility of a national purchasing consortium, though the challenge with that is twofold. One, to take this national, that really then becomes the role of the federal government, right, to act on behalf of all 50 states. The other issue with doing this in a very broad manner is that there's just simply not enough product to acquire. So even if the states do decide to share, ultimately there is a shortage and that needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Elon, thanks. Elon Moy today. Coming up, Silicon Valley is reeling from coronavirus layoffs as startups look to rein in spending. Now they're also looking to the new lending program for help. But so far, no luck. We'll tell you why. Plus, the street gets bullish on hotels, booze and video games today. We've got those details. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back after this. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get to our calls of the day. First up, Marriott getting upgraded by Wells Fargo to overweight, but its price target lowered to 85 from 113. Marriott's trading at 77 today. The company will have almost three quarters of its rooms open globally by Q3, the analysts say. They also expect a dividend increase next year after the company suspended it this year. They, and they add that the stock is attractive compared to its peers at 10 times earnings. Marriott shares up about 9% on the back of that upgrade. Next, Constellation Brands getting upgraded by UBS to a buy with a $180 target, with the analyst saying the long-term opportunity significantly outweighs the near-term risks. UBS believes that after social distancing restrictions are lifted, we will see a lasting behavioral shift that favors outdoor gatherings over bars and restaurant traffic. And that, they say, will help Constellation brands. We all know the advertisements. STZ is up 10% today. And finally, video games. Wells Fargo initiating Activision with an overweight and a $75 target. That's a 27% upside from its current price. Uh, The analyst says the stock gives you exposure to long-term secular growth trends in the game market and a portfolio of seasoned franchises. Activision's growth pillar and wholly owned IP, they say, are also the right recipe for low-risk growth. And Activision Blizzard shares are down about 2% today. Coming up, oil continues to be volatile and whip around as investors ask themselves, will they or won't they when it comes to OPEC and cuts? But will cuts even be enough to bring stability? We'll explore that. And as we head to break, here's a look at some of the retail names that are seeing a big bounce today. Kohl's, Gap, Nordstrom, Bed Bath & Beyond, all up 10% or more. We're back in two.
Welcome back. Dow's hanging on to about a 640-point gain. We're a little bit off the session highs. It's just less than 3% higher, and we're back above 23,000 for that average. Uh, the S&P 500 up 2.3% right now. The Nasdaq up less than 2%. Materials, energy, and financials are the sector leaders today. And within the Dow, uh, the biggest gainers are Dow itself, American Express, Caterpillar, Goldman Sachs, and Exxon. So a lot of names there. But Dow Inc. is up about 15% today. Uh, Exxon is adding about 6%. And speaking of which, the company announced a series of moves in response to the recent plunge in the price of oil. Exxon is reducing capital spending by 30% this year. It's cutting operating expenses by about 15%. CEO Daryl Woods told Squawk Box this morning that the dividend is a high priority and he's willing to use the balance sheet to support it if necessary. For more on what's next for oil, I'm joined by Dan Pickering, the founder and chief investment officer of Pickering Energy Partners. And Brian Sullivan is with us too, and it's great to have you both. Brian, I just want to start on what Exxon has announced. The shares are uh, up nicely in response to it, but a lot of people say, well, how much balance sheet support are they going to have to use for the dividend? Is that the right call? It's the right call for OPEC, Kelly. I mean, listen, Exxon's just getting in line, but I'll take a different side of the story, which is what Exxon is doing is what Saudi Arabia wants to see. I mean, we have made it clear that OPEC is not going to do anything as a group, come back together, make some cut, unless the U.S. is involved. Now, obviously, we don't have a national producer, so it's not like one company can shut off the switch. But these kinds of capital spending cuts will result, and Dad would know more about the numbers than I do, they will result in a couple of months or quarters in a decline of oil. Basically, what I've seen so far is from all the cuts that we've had announced, Kelly, I would say that we'll probably be down a million to two million barrels in U.S. production, just naturally through well decline rate and no new drilling by the end of the year. You know, I'm so glad that you said that because, Brian, frankly, I was thinking about it more from the GDP side than from the production side. So, Dan, let me bring you in on that. How much of a production cut is Exxon effectively signaling here? Yeah, I think if you if you gross up what they're doing, because Exxon's cutting 30 percent, the rest of the industry is cutting 50 um, or more. And so when, when you start thinking about that, we're talking, you know, Brian mentioned a million barrels maybe two. I don't know if it's two million by the end of this year, but it's certainly two million by the end of next year. So it's going to be a significant drop. The question is whether or not Saudi and Russia are going to take uh, our economic shut-ins as good enough for a deal to go forward. I also wonder, Dan, when we're talking about two million barrels by the end of 2021, I mean, that's nothing compared with the oversupply that we have right now. Too big, a, too big a demand problem in the near term. So what we're really talking about is writing the second half of this book, not the first half. The first half is things are going to get worse before they get better. We're filling inventory at 150 million barrels a week. And so when, when that's happening, um, you know, the, the business and oil price is going to be challenged. The question is, how quick can it get better? We need demand to get better, which means the virus has got to go away. And then the supply cuts can matter. So it's a second half story, not a first half story. Brian, where are we on OPEC uh, having meetings and virtual meetings or not having them? I mean, where where are we in all of that? Right now, there's a virtual meeting planned for Thursday. It was supposed to be yesterday. Hard to get that together, I guess, in time, Kelly. So there's an OPEC sort of plus, 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 whatever. Basically, anyone who wants to join, including the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, although from what we've heard, the U.S., the U.K., and Canada have not responded, saying they're going to either tune in, because remember, it's, it's all virtual, obviously, or participate in any way. There is going to be, however, though, likely a G20 meeting on Friday. Why does that matter? 
G20's rotating presidency is Saudi Arabia this year, and it's likely that the Saudis can use that to sort of become a super OPEC, if you will. So I think there's those are the types of things that OPEC, to what we're talking about, these cuts that are coming down the line and production cuts, and maybe this Texas Railroad Commission thing you had that Ryan's sitting on the other day, Kelly. If OPEC hears that, they may say, okay, the U.S. is willing to do its part. We'll be willing to do our part. But to Dan's point, it's all right now about you're never going to match supply demand, Kelly. You just got to right. make sure that you slow down the fill of those oil tanks. And I like, Dan, how you said that, you know, we're talking about what happens in the second half of the book. We already know the first half is, is pretty ugly, and that's where we still are. So let me ask you about the role of Texas. We did have Ryan Sitton, the railroad commissioner, on the other day, and he said they're going to kind of take their cues from Trump. But you're saying that Trump, to you, appears somewhat indifferent. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think the president said the market's going to let it settle out and, and figure it out. And so I think that uh, essentially he's he's saying shut-ins are going to happen because of, of no place to put oil. Uh, that's not a voluntary cutback. That is a an involuntary cutback, if you will. And so I think that Texas, which has a governing body called the Texas Railroad Commission, uh, Texas may prorate or, or shut people in um, on a prorated basis. So you know, Texas will sort of lead the country here, and there's a meeting next week and a decision on April 21st on what they're going to do. So three people hold the fate of, of Texas in their hand. Uh, Ryan Sitton says he wants to cut. We'll have to see what the other two folks want to do. Okay. And, Dan, finally, and I think this is the bottom line for a lot of the people watching right now, uh, you say, if I'm reading this correctly, you think this is the best energy investing opportunity since 1986, or at least that it's starting to be? I think so. Um, it's so bad that it's turning into something good. So the, the sector's off 50 percent. It's bounced 30 uh, percent from a public perspective. But the reality is assets are going to get very cheap. I think it's worse before better. But then it's going to be, you know, the companies that make it through this are going to be stronger. And, and the opportunity to participate in what is an ongoing need for energy is, is there. So this is going to be a great time to put money to work. The problem is it's going to get tougher before it gets easier. All right. And Brian, before we go, how, do, how does the media attend that, that OPEC plus 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 meeting, so to speak? Oh, we don't. What, we, what the media does, and by the media I mean me because I can't speak for anybody else that's going to be, there's no stairwell this time, virtual stairwell, uh, is basically you have sources. That's why you go in person. You make friends, you make contacts, and you WhatsApp or text or call those sources and say, hey, what's being said on the call? And that's basically all that we can do. But... Uh, while trying to manage a five-year-old, a dog, a wife who's working from home and, and anchoring a 5 p.m. show. But it will be done, <laughs> Kelly. Well, uh, we look forward to that. And we thank you both uh, for joining us today to talk about all of this. Sure. Brian Sullivan and Dan Pickering. Up next, tech is not immune to job cuts during this coronavirus crisis. The details on which startups are feeling the most pain. Plus, many experts say Germany and parts of Europe are doing a better job getting money to Main Street than we are here in America. What they're doing right and what we can learn from them is coming up. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Job cuts have been a quick but painful way for companies to rein in spending as they look to survive the economic downturn. And startups are not immune to that. Kate Rooney joins me now with more on the impact this is having there. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Job cuts are becoming a painful reality for startups. A quick, a quick update on those numbers. 
One real-time tracker shows more than 12,000 startup employees have been laid off since the coronavirus was declared a pandemic. That's across 162 companies. And a new survey out this week from the Silicon Valley Leadership Group shows about a fifth of major employers in the Bay Area are either actively considering layoffs or have gone through with them. Many of these companies were holding out hope that Treasury and the SBA would clarify what are known as affiliation rules. Those make most VC and private equity-backed companies ineligible for these emergency loans. Over the weekend, though, they were disappointed. Treasury clarified that nonprofits and faith-based groups can apply for paycheck protection loans, but most VC-backed startups are still not included. Kelly? You know, Kate, one of my questions on this is, are they laying people off because the sectors they're exposed to are in distress or because they survive on funding and the liquidity is dried up? It's a little bit of both. You see it more acutely in places like hospitality, and certain startups are actually doing well. You see certain telemedicine and biotech companies still able to lose money, but overwhelmingly, investors are also tightening their belts. So not only... Uh, do they have to lay people off potentially, but they may also have trouble funding going forward. So investors that I've talked to have said they're really in survival mode. They're telling their current portfolio companies to rein in spending uh, in the event that they can't raise more money. Yep, I understand. Uh, absolutely. Kate, thanks so much. Kate Rooney there. Well, some experts say that Europe's approach to unemployment is proving better than America's in the coronavirus pandemic. As Foreign Policy Mag recently put it, America is having an unemployment apocalypse. Europe chose not to. Joining me now, Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook is executive director of the Future of Diplomacy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School, along with our very own Steve Leisman. Steve, before I get into that discussion, since I have you, I just want to ask about some headlines uh, from former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke, which just crossed. Where is he uh, speaking and what are his latest thoughts on this uh, coronavirus? Um, he is uh, speaking at Brookings. In fact, he's on my computer, on my <laughs> other computer right over here. And I'm going to take the moment here to lower the audio. There we go. Uh, yeah, he's basically backing the uh, fiscal policy and programs that are out there. He supports what the Fed is doing. He was asked whether or not he feels like the Fed is going too far and he doesn't feel as if they are. He said that um, uh, there is really no limit to how much the Fed's balance sheet can grow in this situation. He's expecting a sharp downturn, has questions about whether or not uh, there's going to be a quick bounce back. He's concerned that, for example, we come back to work in the sometime in the early summer and then maybe we have another episode in the fall. And so his uh, basic outlook is, is geared to the public health response in the first place. And in the second place, how long this lasts. He said it's not the Great Depression, but it could be end up being a little bit more <clears throat> sorry, um, uh, painful and, and, and lengthy than we think right at the moment. Yeah, I like how he says, you know, this is more of a natural disaster. That was more of a man-made event. Okay, let me go back then, which raises right. the issue, of course, of jobless claims. Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook is with us. And Catherine, what, what is the European approach uh, to jobless claims? It, and do you think a model like that could be coming here? So the really interesting component is um, every country is doing it in a different way. Um, and that's kind of a, a bit of a problem, frankly. And that's why we're seeing so much haste on the European side, uh, meaning to say in Brussels, through Brussels, to try to come up with uh, something that would be a, a sort of an intra-European mechanism. Um, I think the most generous countries right now that are trying to shore up their labor market certainly are Germany and Denmark. Um, Germany has a scheme that it has built over time. Uh, it has a rainy day fund of about 
26 billion euros to shore up particularly labor markets uh, through a very specifically German scheme called short work, which is to say that the, the government covers about 60 percent, 67 percent uh, if you have a child of uh, the income you're not making or you're being reduced from making uh, through your corporations. And the idea is, similar idea in Denmark too, is that you're going to reduce the costs uh, for hiring or rehiring if you were to lay people off. Right. So it's right. the idea that you're going to support both your workers so that you create worker fidelity, if you will, to companies. Um, you're going to let companies come back, get back online faster. Uh, and the country is going to shoulder the burden for that. And now estimates go, uh, it's going to eat up probably half of that rainy day fund. But wow. that's something wow. that the German government put in place after the financial crisis. Yeah, and like you said, a lot of people said oh. Germany bounced back rapidly from the crisis because of this short yeah. work system. But I wonder if it comes at the cost of flexibility. I mean, the real reason that they have it is because in Germany, it's really hard to lay people off. It's a very highly regulated labor market. Do we really want America to be going down that road? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you're not going to get the same situation in the United States as you are in Germany or even in Europe. We have a totally different system of sort of social welfare and transfer payments. For the German economy, of course, that makes sense because if you think about what are the bulk uh, items in the German economy, they're machine building, they're automobiles, they're big time manufacturing jobs. And even as we look ahead around like what could the next three months of recovery post reopening in about two to three months look like? Mm -hmm. The sectors that are likely going to benefit or going to be able to come back online are those sectors. Service economies like the UK uh, or even large parts of the United States are going to be hit much harder because of uh, the percentage that services are in this economy or the UK. Steve, let me ask you what lasting changes you think we might experience to the way that we do jobless benefits in this country from first the financial crisis and now the pandemic. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say I actually went over to Germany and did a story on this Kurs Arbat, which is this shortened work weekend. I don't think there's anything about implementing this in a downturn that would limit flexibility. I guess it would uh, limit flexibility of workers to move to another sector on the way back. But the question becomes in a downturn, if you want them to remain attached to their existing workplace and ease the burden of rehiring them and get a quicker start. So that's one uh, question. I think, Kelly, that we're going to rethink our entire social safety net system. You see what's happening now. Even the astonishing numbers that we have on jobless claims are low because of the inability of states to process them. The unemployment claims is our first line of defense out here. Congress had to raise that amount, and there's a debate about how, how much it raised it. Uh, there's a debate about whether or not the Fed should have to come in. This is the second time around, Kelly. The Fed has had to come in and completely backstop the financial system, although, of course, the banks are doing better now, but other parts of the system are not. So I, I think when we have a chance to catch our breath, we're going to go back and take a look at the social safety net, take a look at what the Fed's proper role here is, and why, once again, it has to come in and backstop the financial system. Catherine, what do you think, uh, you know, if we're in the in the luxury of being able to pluck what works and, and chuck what doesn't. What, what should we pluck here in the U.S. for the future? Well, I do think that uh, it's critical to have some sort of backstop, some sort of employment um, backstop is absolutely critical because, again, what are the costs, and we've already alluded to it, what are the costs of rehiring? Those are enormous, right? Um, rehiring, retraining, repositioning within the economy. And we in the United States don't have a full, you know, sort of comprehensive view of what that actually means and how that might 
further derail or slow down economic growth in this country. So to have that sort of backstop, I think long term, because again, you know, we're, we're going to inevitably face some version of global shock as we go forward. Um, and we need to restore trust within our financial systems. And one way to do that is to have that insurance policy, but then also to work in two different directions. We already talked, out, talked about it. We need that medical solution. But again, we need to ensure that our companies can get back to work. And the yeah. way to do that is for those backstops and to do it through the government. And before I let you go, Steve, since you kind of said there that we need to rethink our entire social safety net system, what, what else are you hearing that might be part of that rethink? Well, I mean, look at what the Fed is trying to do right now. It's trying to create this Main Street lending facility. And I've been reporting on this all day. A series of enormous, enormous uh, uh, challenges to the Federal Reserve, both from the stipulations in the CARES Act, but also the kind of conflict with the Fed's general uh, way of operating, which is not to take losses. Who will backstop uh, Main Street? Who will backstop uh, private business in these situations? What's a way to get this money out more quickly to the uh, to, to individuals and help them out? Uh, in the event of a sudden shock like this. I think there's a lot of things to think about here. I, I do think we're doing pretty good, given the state of the system before we went into this. All right. Thank you both. We appreciate it. Steve Leisman, Catherine Kluver, Ashbrook. Thank you so much. Up ahead, another update for the markets after a massive gain yesterday that was the Dow's third biggest point gain ever. So what happens now? Our guest says there's one key thing to watch for in the search for the path forward. He joins us next. Welcome back. Checking on shares of the airlines right now. They're all moving higher. JetBlue, American Spirit and Southwest are having some huge gains of more than 10 percent today. And this comes despite some new numbers showing there are less and less passengers traveling. Yesterday, only 108,000 airline passengers went through the system versus nearly 2.4 million last year on the same day. That means we just had 4 percent of the usual amount of traffic. But again, after seeing some big declines today, the airlines are snapping back. Now, how's this for a stat? All three major indices are now up more than 20% from their 52-week lows, which was set just three weeks ago. So what happens from here and which indicators should we watch to see if we're forming a bottom? With us now is Wasif Latif. He is Victory Solutions Head of Investments. And Terry Spath is Chief Investment Officer at Sierra Mutual Funds. Wasif, I'll start with you. What's on the dashboard? What are you watching? Well, clearly the market, Kelly, is watching all of the slowdown in the growth rate coming out of uh, New York and Europe. And I think the market's rejoicing out of that. But uh, what needs to be seen is how the unemployment data comes out, because this is unprecedented since the Great Depression. So the amount of uh, unemployment that needs to come out that we need to see. And then really next week, I think the real thing is corporate earnings and the guidance that companies provide going forward and how that comes out in this environment. Uh, with volatility still at high levels, we still need to be focusing on quality and low volatility type of investments. So uh, products like VSMV are a great place to be. Okay. So, but you said jobless claims in terms of things to watch. You think that's number one? Uh, would there be a second or third? Or do, do you just wa say watch those weekly claims when they start to fall? That tells you that's the all clear. Well, to me, from a market investment standpoint, it really is corporate guidance because ultimately the job losses um, will impact margins. And as we ramp back up, and if things are on the clear from a health standpoint in the next three to five weeks, then uh, what we need to see is the 
the real the margin impact to corporations as they cut their uh, workforce? Are they going to bring back folks online at a reasonable rate? So jobs are part of the picture. They're, they're somewhat of a rear view looking picture. So to me, it's more about the guidance that companies give going forward okay. uh, because we are in unprecedented areas. And, and the key thing to watch for from a corporate sheets, uh, the market is still looking at Fortress balance sheets being the main place to be. Yeah. And I think that's going to continue to be the case as we move through this. Now, coming out of this, we're going to get a lot like what we're seeing today, which is some of the, the, the weaker companies, but the, the really value-oriented companies coming back and rallying back. Okay, Terry, let me bring you in, and we should let our audience know you guys are only down 3% on the year, uh, which is pretty impressive given how awful these markets have been. So, uh, how, you know, how did you pull that off, and what, how are you positioning now? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. I mean, I think I would take a little bit of a different view than the uh, than the other guests. I think when there's times of maximum pessimism, that could be a time of maximum opportunity in the in the equity markets. And we've certainly been crash tested. Our systems have been crash tested, as, I, as you pointed out. Um, most of our funds are down about three percent. We have a fund, our Sierra Tactical Bond Fund, which is up about seven percent year to date, and we're using a rules based approach. We're not making a projection about the future. I do think that earnings will be down. I do think employment numbers are going to be terrible, as was pointed out earlier. But some of the rules that we're looking at are pointing us to some opportunity right now in some of the risk on areas. We like Hong Kong right now. We like technology. We like healthcare. We're looking at high yield corporate bonds, which at you know 800, 900 basis points spreads to U.S. Treasuries historically have represented a terrific back-of-the-truck moment to get involved. So we're, uh, we're sort of buying right now in, um, in some areas, and I think our rules-based approach has proven us that we can be crash-tested as well as participate in the upside going forward. So that's interesting, Terry. And, and again, to make sure people caught that, you're looking at places like Hong Kong uh, to invest. You're looking at sectors like technology and healthcare, and you're doing it rules-based, not based on predicting the future. So is that a simple valuation uh, story. I mean, what are those metrics uh, to you that signal buy? It's not a it's not a valuation story. Although the valuations do look intriguing down here, what it's based on is what the market is really telling us, which is trends. So we're looking to identify trends to the upside, something that would be a six nine month trend, and that's where we're seeing some movement. Um, like I said, in healthcare and technology in Hong Kong, even in high yield corporate bonds, starting to see that. So it's a quantitative. Um, technical approach um, when we're looking at things, not just a pure valuation, because things can stay cheap for a very long time. But until the market starts to pick that up, um, we wait to get involved. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, I, I want to clear up something. So uh, we have a really strong suite of rules-based ETFs that have done tremendously well. And so I was talking about what the market is going to be looking for going forward. Um, yeah, our, our uh, CFO ETF has done tremendously well. It has a rules-based mechanism to go into cash which it did at the end of February, and then it subsequently went back into the market at the end of March, and now we're enjoying part of that. So we have a lot of higher-quality rules-based type of products as well which, that have done really well. Yeah. I just think that um, you know the, uh, the market will continue to be volatile for this time being, and I think going forward, we do like emerging markets and international equity for okay. the longer term as we come out of this. Great. Thank you both. Wasif Latif, uh, we appreciate it. Terry Spath, it's nice to talk to you as well. Thank you guys today. We have some breaking news out of Washington. Want to jump to Kayla Tausche joins us. Kayla, what's going on?
Well, the Treasury Secretary Kelly just tweeting that he has spoken with bipartisan leaders and at the direction of the president, he's going to seek a $250 billion expansion of the Paycheck Protection Program. Earlier today, the Senate Majority Leader said that they would consider this on Thursday and try to do this via voice vote, which they could do remotely. Uh, but $250 billion is what they're looking to expand that small business loan program by. Kelly? Now, that's roughly what we expected, Kayla, in terms of Senator Rubio saying it needed 200, 250 billion. So the Treasury Secretary's support probably just makes it sound like that higher end of the threshold could be coming. Yes, but interesting, Kelly, that it is still lower than the original size of the program. They do not feel the need needs to be double the existing allocation, uh, even as we're getting reports that um, the demand has far outstripped the supply of this existing program. President Trump said last night that uh, he would seek an immediate replenishment of that program. $250 billion is the number they're seeking. Kelly? Right, instead of a full 350. Kayla, thanks. As always, Kayla Tausche in Washington. Keep it right here as our breaking news coverage continues. I'll join Tyler for Power Lunch right after this. One of our guests says we may be seeing some better news on the outbreak, but we still have a boatload of negative economic news to face ahead. We'll ask him how he sees that playing out for the market. Plus, yes, restaurateur and chef Tim Love will join us. He'll weigh in on the new Paycheck Protection Program, the struggle for his restaurants, and what business looks like when America's shutdown comes to an end. We'll be right back. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.